0: The conservative conscience and welcome back to the conservative conscience here at your one stop shop for truth telling conservative review, not judicial review, but conservative review. This is the conservative conscience. It is Tuesday, May the 28th. And let me tell you something. It feels like a Monday. I know a lot of you have a hard time getting back after holiday weekend. Um, For my end, I could tell you I've been itching to get back in front of this microphone. It certainly was a welcome respite to have a couple days off. And, uh, you know, I was thinking when I go for several days without really dealing with my job, I begin to feel like most Americans in which, you know, what you don't know can't hurt you. When you follow things at this level, as many of you do, those of you who follow this show, it's maddening. It drives it crazy. And we wonder why there's no uprising in this country when our constitutional republic, our rights as citizens, have been flipped on its head for non-citizens, for special classes, protected parochial interests, rather than following true, true equality under the law, And the reason is, I guess what you don't know can't hurt you. And life is so good in this era that if you kind of tune out the news and you're able to live your life, you're okay until you can no longer do that. And I think our concern is that we want to jolt people and wake them up before you get to that point where you know the news without tuning into it, where it affects your life in real time, not in a subtle way. Things are a little bit too subtle now. So that's just the thought I had over Memorial Day with things becoming so, so, um, so bad politically. But even even for myself, knowing everything going on in politics, you tune it out for a couple of days, you spend some nice family time, outdoors time, you go hiking. Um, however, some of you commemorated your Memorial Day. You know, a lot of you go to Memorial events, for you know, families and friends who have uh, lost their lives, given the ultimate sacrifice in defense of this country. But when you come back, you realize, yeah, you know, I could do this forever. I could take time off, and I'll be a lot happier. But I think we all know that a time is going to come very soon, where whether it's crime and illegal migration or the debt, it is going to come crashing down on us. And the objective is to restore a republic before that happens. Do we really need to go through something like that in order to restore a republic? I don't know. But let me just say, let me just say this. You know, Congress is out. Congress is out all week. But we all know the courts never rest. There's a lot of news for a sleepy Tuesday following a holiday weekend. There's actually a lot going on, a lot to talk about that I'm not going to have enough time to cram into this show, which is a rarity for, for a day like this. Usually it's it's slow. You're almost looking for news stories. But here we're never looking for things because there is so much truth that needs to be given over. And today we're going to talk a lot about the courts because it's very clear that we have one branch of government And we have the wrong strategy in dealing with that one branch of government. Piggybacking off of Memorial Day, what our soldiers have fought for over the years? Calvin Coolidge, one of the greatest presidents of the United States, on May 30th, 1927, in honor of Decoration Day back then Memorial Day was called Decoration Day. He ended off his speech the following way. He was discussing the point that you know, you need a country that is worth fighting for. You need a constitutional republic whose integrity is intact in order to be worthy of sacrifice. So, he actually he ended off the speech. I'm going to read the end of the speech as a segue into what happened over the weekend, what happened today, just a couple moments ago, with court opinions coming out, and where we are today, all wrapped up into the potential of Trump and the lost opportunities of Trump, and the big three tools that the president has that thus far he has often not used properly. The veto pen, the bully pulpit, and executive power this is a theme we're going to be developing we might not have full time to fully develop it today but everything going on usually fits under one of those or inside one of those buckets veto pen bully pulpit and executive power and then the fourth thing is we need a movement to pressure this president to use them and nowhere is this more evident than with the courts where certainly executive power and bully pulpit come in. We discussed the veto pen on Friday. We'll give you an update on that, some of the budget bills coming down. But when we get to the courts, let's just first talk about what Calvin Coolidge said. Quote, the integrity of the union rests on the Constitution. Unless that great instrument is to be the supreme law of the land, we could have no union worthy of our consideration. In its original inception, it was the product of prayerful consideration by the best endowed minds that were ever turned to political del- deliberation. Although it was drafted in convention... It represented the mature thought of the country. Into it went the genius of Adams and Jefferson, of Franklin and Madison, of Hamilton and Washington. It has been expounded by Webster and other statesmen in the Congress and adjudicated by Marshall and other magistrates on the bench. With its three independent departments, the executive, legislative, and judicial, it established a Republican form of government incomparable in the guarantees of order and liberty with which it has endowed the American people. As a charter of freedom and self-government, it is unsurpassed by any political document which ever guided the destinies of a people. We have made our place in the world through the Union and the, and the Constitution. We have flourished as a people because of our success in establishment and self-government. But all of these results are predicated upon a law-abiding people. If our own country should be given over to violence and crime, it should be necessary to diminish the bounds of our freedom To secure order and self-preservation. In whatever direction we may go, we are always confronted with the inescapable conclusion that unless we observe the law, we cannot be free. Unless we are an industrious, orderly nation, we can neither minister to our own requirements or be an effective influence for good in the world. All of these things come from the hearts of the people. So long as they have the will to do right and the determination to make sacrifices, our institutions will stand secure at home and respected abroad. It is to those, had that will, who showed that determination, that we do. That that we too that that we today do honor. I'm sorry that we today do honor. He's talking about Memorial Day. And then he just ends up by saying, we cannot leave this hallowed ground. This was a speech at um, Arlington National Cemetery, decorated as it is today with all the flowers which loving memory has brought without realizing anew that it was the spirit of those who rest here which gave us our independence, our constitution, our union, and our freedom. They have bequeathed to us the rarest, richest heritage which was ever bestowed upon any people their memory speaks to us always reminding us to what we have received from them and of our duty to dedicate ourselves to his preservation and perfection in this way uh, that's end quote by the way in this way Memorial Day is really a segue into July 4th Independence Day because sacrifice is only worthy if you're sacrificing for a nation at home that's w- worthwhile to preserve But we don't have these three branches of government he spoke about. We have one branch of government. We have the unelected branch of government that doesn't adjudicate cases that now is regarded as the sole and final arbiter of any issue. And now it's any district judge is also the sole arbiter, unless he's overturned, which often, as we're going to discuss, they're not. And some random foreign shop decision could decide everything. So with that... Let's go to the big news of the weekend. Late Friday, when all of politics is shutting down, again, the courts never shut down, you could have a random district judge roll out of bed and issue an opinion in a case he randomly granted standing to that's not a case anytime he wants. So what do we have today? Or this was was actually Friday. We had this Obama judge as we predicted issue a preliminary injunction against Trump's use of defense funding, reprogramming defense funding for the border wall. Now, first, it is important to recognize that you heard it here on this show in February when Trump gave up his leverage. Again, what is it? Bully pulpit. Veto pen. That was with a budget bill. And executive action. He signed this horrible bill Signing away all of his leverage, signing away his ability to harness a national attention on what's going on at the border and using the bully pulpit. In fact, there were worse provisions that barred ICE from even using information given to them by HHS to deport and apprehend those engaging in smuggling of these so called unaccompanied minors. And at the time, the Trump apologist said to us, Oh, don't worry he's going to go and act executively anyway. And at the time we mentioned, dude, it's all about the courts. It's all about the loopholes. If you don't stop, catch and release, it doesn't matter. Gradual construction of a border wall doesn't even matter. But we also noted that even if you think it does matter, it all is going to get back to the courts. They're going to take it to California and they're going to put an injunction on the president's construction of a border wall. And either you fight that notion, that premise that courts have such power and we have a republic, or if you agree to it and you don't fight it, nothing matters anyway because the same way you're unwilling to fight the notion that a judge could take a look at a 1996 law passed unanimously by the Senate, 8 U.S.C. 1225 B34, that says that those seeking asylum, even legitimate asylees, much less population transfer, which is what we're dealing with now, shall be detained. And a judge could say, no, family units shall not be detained. And we say, based on one judge, we are going to spawn an invasion of a million people into this country because a single district judge's order, we're coming up on almost a year from that order in July from Judge Sabraw, And still, the Supreme Court has not taken it up. And we're told that's law of the land. So I told you guys, well, what are you going to do when they shut down the construction of the border wall too? Don't doubt me. So come Friday, Haywood Gilliam of the Northern District of California issued a preliminary injunction against the construction of fencing in Yuma and El Paso. Now, isn't that ironic? It's a California judge ruling on something that's exclusively not in California. And even if it would be, it would be in the Southern District, not the Northern District. This is the San Francisco-based district. And the important thing about this ruling is that this would have been the perfect opportunity for the president to draw a line in the sand. We were all talking about this. When are we going to have this cathartic moment? What is the trigger in tripwire where a court goes too far, where it is so nakedly political that everyone could see that, that the president could easily use the bully pulpit to push back against it and say, you know what? These nationwide injunctions, and frankly, even without a nationwide injunction, these granting standing to random people or other branches of government to sue another branch of government, over fundamentally national security issues, appropriation issues, they clearly don't have authority, and you know what? Judge Sabra didn't have authority either, and therefore we're ending catch and release. So not only are we going to... I, I hate when people say, oh, disobey. It's not disobey. We are going to deny the opportunity to give this injunction effect because the injunction has no effect without the executive branch. Alexander Hamilton said in Federalist 68 that courts have neither force nor will, and he meant the Supreme Court, but merely judgment and must ultimately depend upon the aid of the executive arm even for the efficacy of its judgments. But everyone takes a look at this. Oh, the, the judge put an injunction. No, he didn't do anything. The executive branch has to agree to stop constructing it. This would have been the perfect opportunity for a number of reasons. Number one, like I said, it's a selected California judge. It's transparent to everyone how absurd this is. It's in it's in Yuma and, and El Paso. Number two, another judge in the D.C. Circuit Court, a D.C. District Court, federal district, they sued in two courts. And the D.C. Court is actually more, it's transparently more appropriate because any, if you don't like any regulation promulgated by the executive branch that you feel that he exceeded, the president exceeded his authority, you go to the D.C. Circuit, California is, is bullcrap. It's neither, especially the Northern District, is neither in the district where the wall is being constructed, nor is it in the district of the seat of the government. In that district, in oral arguments, Judge Trevor McFadden said, uh, this is about a week and a half ago, that, that what plaintiffs are asking is in unusual territory to ask him to resolve such a, quote, ugly dispute between the political branches. So this judge, the one, you know, Gilliam, he starts off his opinion by saying, oh, let's just say what this is not. This is not about, you know, the veracity of the Trump's view on the wall or whatever. This is about the lawful use of appropriations. But that's the point. The use of appropriations, that is, he's right. Appropriations is Congress's power. So how could Democrats in Congress get standing to go to a judge to sue over the... So so now you're giving a judge the power of the purse? Really? But anyway, before that, it's important to note, this would be a perfect example where you have another judge saying the exact opposite. So this would be the perfect time to expose the stupidity and illegitimacy of conflicting, dueling district court opinions. No, I'm going to follow McFadden. Okay, he could have had that to hang his hat on. Then, like I said, are we really going to give the courts the power of the purse? They can now control what you could fund? Meaning, even if the president legitimately overstepped his authority. Again, that's for Congress to deal with. Courts can't get involved in how funding is spent. Let Congress have a funding fight in September and refuse, you know, the the Pelosi House could pass a budget bill in September and refused to fund the executive office of the president. That's how you fight back against him. The president could say, are are we really going to give the courts the power of the purse? Are we really going to give them power over an international boundary? As I noted before, this very district, the Northern district of California in 1996 said that denying entry to aliens is inherent in executive authority. This very court. So, the wall is to deny entry. The president has inherent executive authority pursuant to a ruling of this this guy's own court. That's another thing he could have used the bully pulpit to give over in defense of his executive action. Next point. This judge donated thousands of dollars to the Obama campaign and to other Democrat and left wing causes. So everyone sees it's nakedly political. Why should Gilliam's nakedly political ruling on un- an unambiguously political question supersede Trump's political decisions when the president is the guy who's standing before the American people for re election largely on this very question? Well, the judge will never face any scrutiny. And finally, on the merits, this is unbelievable, unbelievable on so many levels. I want to make sure you guys understand what happened here in this court ruling. So the, the president tapped several buckets of funding for this. There was a lot of focus on the Emergencies Act, that the president declared an emergency, and he used Section 2808 of the Emergencies Act of 1976 to, quote, undertake military construction projects that are not otherwise authorized by law that are necessary to support such use of the armed forces in the event that the president declares national emergency. That that was the basis of, of this fight was over Section 2808 of the Emergencies Act. And that's what there was some fighting over. And, you know, like I noted at the time, is the president really doing this to buttress the armed forces? I know if I know I would be doing that, but he has the armed forces down there as cooks and lawyers. No, it's a loophole. But nonetheless, I I still believe it's not justiciable. So there's that. Now, that's what everyone was fighting over. The the part that he used to declare an emergency. Okay? Now, one thing that's really disturbing here is that there's another bucket here. So, so by the way, the judge didn't rule on this. That's not what he went after. He went after one billion in funding that the president used not under the emergency powers. okay? This is straight up. I'm going to read to you from a CRS, Congressional Research Service. So this is Congress's own research arm, right? So, so what do you have? You have a bunch of Democrats and the Sierra Club, environmental group, suing. Now, how in the world, again, how could one branch of government sue another one in the third branch? I mean, use your own powers to fight back against them. I mean, just a lawsuit on its face is absurd. Where's the standing? Where's the gestational claim? What sort of redress do you want? If you're environmental, you can't can't say, oh, I'm going to give you relief. The president can't transfer the funding. You have nothing to do with that. And if it's an environmental claim, all the laws waive environmental claims. So if the president doesn't have the right to do it, he doesn't have the right to do it. If he does, he does, but it's not under environmental claims. So what sort of relief do you want? This is this is an abstract policy. You can't take that to court. But anyway, this judge was ruling on the president's power of counter narcotics. So here's some CRS. Another statute that authorizes the Secretary of Defense to assist civilian law enforcement with counter-drug activities may provide some authority for the construction of barriers along the border. 10 U.S.C. 284 provides that the Secretary of Defense, quote, may provide support for the counter-drug activities or activities to counter transnational organized crime of any law enforcement agency, including through the construction of roads and fences and installation of lighting to block drug smuggling corridors across international boundaries of the United States. Use of Section 284 would not require a declaration of national emergency under the National Emergencies Act. Now, you have endless drugs coming over. You have literally just, what was this? Just last year, the Department of Justice designated all these groups as transnational criminal organizations, the term that's used in this very statute. I think they should be designated as terrorists, but that's a different story. So the shoe fits. I I mean, you you read all these, even the liberal legal blogs, everyone agreed the president had the authority to use funding in the counter-drug accounts. Everyone agreed. This wasn't, no one even thought this part would be sued. Yet that is the part The billion dollars from that bucket is what he put an injunction on. I mean, can you imagine that? The judge writes, the position that when Congress declines the executive's request to appropriate funds, the executive nonetheless may simply find a way to spend those funds without Congress does not square with the fundamental separation of powers, principles dating back to the earliest days of a republic. Isn't it rich when they? Speak to separation of powers dating back the earliest days of our republic. Somehow the courts are never in violation of that. But anyway, the point here is the judge is saying that if you have a political fight that the president wants funding and Congress explicitly denies it, so that's it. But he is missing the point. Congress is a continual body of law. So there's not just this Congress, but there's the laws already passed by previous Congresses. With absent a new Congress repealing that and the president signing that into law, those laws stand. If if you don't like, you know, the fact that there's a political battle and the president makes an end run around it, I understand if someone doesn't feel comfortable with that. But the reality is, Congress throughout the years has given the president tons of authority on many things. So even if he doesn't get blatant new authority on something or new appropriations, there's often a lot of avenues. And in this case, there was one very clear avenue, even clearer than the Emergencies Act. Section 284 of 10 U.S.C., right, the counter drug smuggling statute. That's there. Right, the fact that Congress didn't want to give him new appropriations doesn't repeal that. So he's making a nakedly political point here. This would have been the perfect opportunity for the president to stand before the American people and say, wait a minute. The whole reason we're talking about this in the first place is because of a judicial violation of separation of power mandating catch and release when the laws of Congress passed unanimously said shall be detained. And this judge has the chutzpah to speak about me violating the law? Are you kidding me? This would have been the perfect time because everyone understands this issue is nakedly political. Unfortunately, a lot of the other stuff we talk about on immigration is too in the weeds. Everyone understands the border wall and the absurdity of a court deciding on that. But yet, what did the president tweet out? Quote, another activist Obama appointed judge has just ruled against us on a section of the southern wall that is already under construction. This is a ruling against border security and in favor of crime, drugs, and human trafficking. We are asking for an expedited appeal. Oh, jeez. I mean <laughs> that that cements the premise that there a judge could do no wrong, that that, that the judge has like some sort of activated veto power that is binding, self-executing. Boom. I have to appeal it. No, I will not give it the force of law. As Alexander Hamilton said. If he's not going to draw the line here, he will never draw the line. Especially because this was, you know, my view, obviously this is no longer the issue. The wall is no longer the issue, but this was certainly his big issue. So, for his purposes, if he's not going to fight on this, I don't know what he will. So, a, a judge could say Trump has to cut his balls off and he'll say, You know, I'm asking for an expedited appeal. As we spoke about on Friday, he gives up his veto pen and signs a retarded, you know, or, or has his willingness to sign it, give away all his leverage on this disaster aid that's bad enough on the spending levels but denies him any disaster funding for the border. And he gives up on it. He gives up on it. Thanks to Chip Roy, he still has leverage, but he's not using it. Democrats are going to try again, even though Congress is out. They have what's called pro forma sessions where they just gavel. They have like one guy sit there in the chair, usually someone who lives in Maryland close by that could travel in, and uh, gavels it open. So what they're going to try... Usually, they just do nothing. What they're going to try to do is pass this bill by unanimous consent again. So my my understanding is that Chip has some allies that live within, you know, not too far away from D.C. that are going to come in to object. But nowhere is the White House taking Chip's opportunity and demanding... Demanding that they add border funding to it. That's the irony. So he submits himself to any California judge, even when a D.C. district judge is going to say the opposite. He won't use the veto pen as leverage. He won't use the bully pulpit other than random tweets that are off and off message. Look, folks. Look. Look. I don't think you understand how badly I want this president to succeed. I'm not looking for things to criticize. I recognize more than anyone understanding the lay of the land with my colleagues in this business that we don't have a leadership movement to start a new party. As badly as I want to, as badly as I'm going to continue looking for new ways to do so, it's not coming. The Democrats are off the wall The Republicans are retarded. Trump at least initially is open to our views. The only primary challenge there will be is from people to the left of him, not to the right of him. So for the time being, for the next six years or so, he is our only hope to get anything we want done. And there is that willingness to listen to us. But what am I supposed to do when I see one after another him missing these opportunities? Go off message. Screw us on so many things. We're going backwards on judicial power. We're going not for, oh, he appointed all these judges. That's nonsense. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. We're going backwards on immigration. We're going backwards on crime. All the things he campaigned, we're going backwards on spending. What am I supposed to do? I badly want to back this guy, but it's not about backing him or not. It's about doing the right thing and getting him to do the right thing. He's the only one who will listen, but only listen if we demand, not cheerlead, not distract. It's just so frustrating. The mix of the use of the bully pulpit threatening a veto and asserting executive powers that he has and defending them with the bully pulpit and the veto. They mix together. His power to get rid of DACA, back it by a veto against bills Democrats want passed, back it by the bully pulpit. His executive power against the courts. But instead, he uses his bully pulpit to legitimize these rulings. Expedited appeal. We're already waiting a year for the Supreme Court on all these other immigration cases. And before I get back to Trump, now that we talked about the courts, I want to discuss the courts a little bit. What happened this morning, Tuesday morning? The Supreme Court issued more orders today. And if you look at the mix of a bunch of different cases... In the courts. So. Today's Supreme Court session, or whatever you want to call it, opinions. Affirms my longstanding principles that the capacity of a good judge to do good is nowhere near the capacity of a bad judge to do bad. That the courts are a one way street and a dead end. The courts are a one way ratchet for us that quote, having more Republican presidents just appoint better judges while acceding to the premise of judicial supremacism plus nationwide injunctions and forum shopping is a losing game every day of the week. All those are proved by a mixture and juxtaposition of several cases today. Whenever you have radical, radical lower court rulings that are divorced from precedent that are very consequential. If you have a so-called conservative majority in the Supreme Court, you would expect that they immediately take up that case, at least immediately take take down the injunction, if not immediately reverse on the merits. But instead, time and again, the Supreme Court will not wade in and they tacitly bless and legitimize the most radical things from the lower court judges. Yet, when you have good lower court rulings from better judges, somehow the Supreme Court takes up the appeal to possibly overturn it. Every time. And this is for two reasons. One is a lot of the conservative judges are idiots. They're not conservative. And number two, even a real one, because they're principled and they have a certain way of doing things, they're consistent about it, whereas the left, they are ironclad, whether at a lower court level, whether at appellate level, whether at a Supreme Court level. They will always rule, whether it's on a motion, on an injunction, on a granting a cert, on the merits, on the appeal, whatever it is, they will always rule categorically for the political outcome that they want all the time, every time. So you mix those two together, the hemming and hawing and somewhat intellectual consistency and principledness of conservative judges mixed with that. We, what you get is a toxic mix of us losing every time. So let's start off with the Indiana abortion case. That was the big case today. Box v. Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky. So ready several years ago by now the um state of Indiana, passed by the legislature, overwhelmingly signed into law, prohibits abortion providers from treating the bodies of aborted children as infectious waste and incinerating them in a laboratory, meaning it requires them to have burial of fetal remains. And number two, it barred sex-selected abortions where you do an abortion solely because of the child's race Sex, diagnosis of Down syndrome, disability, or related characteristics. Not using it at all as a criterion, but as the sole criterion. That's all the law was. Okay. So bury the fetal remains and just don't do an abortion solely based on what they do in China. This kid is Down syndrome. This kid's a woman, a, a girl, a boy, whatever, has a disability I don't like. Very simple. Very simple. And you might see a lot of headlines today portending good news. Oh, uh, the Supreme Court uh, takes off the injunction of lower court on fetal remains. Nope. If you really look at this, this case has gone backwards so badly that it voids out even the good news. And most people are missing the point. Anyone should agree that if we work this hard to get a 5 to 4 conservative Supreme Court and you know I know and you know they're not all conservatives but I think we agree that even Roberts even Kavanaugh there there's a degree of sanity in them that they're not going to you know go this far and we should hope that if rather than delegitimizing judicial supremacism, the notion that 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 a judge could just say a, a, a state law um, no, you must uh, allow abortions here. Or you must uh, have clinics like this. No, the law is the law. You want to grant relief to a plaintiff, grant relief to a plaintiff doesn't take down the law. But the only thing we're going to do is work hard to have a um, a conservative Supreme Court. So you would expect at a very minimum that they would expeditiously overturn the Seventh Circuit, the District Court, the Seventh Circuit in Indiana radically said that the state can't do this, require fetal remains be buried, and ban abortions that are based solely on sex selection or disability. We're not talking about categorically banning abortions after 12 weeks or 20 weeks even. I mean, right? This is very simple. There's literally no case law for them to rely on to bar this to to enjoin the law, but they did it anyway. Took forever to get to the Supreme Court. Finally, what do they do? They say they they deny cert. They say we are not taking up the issue on sex selection and, you know, disability selection abortions. So they deny the appeal. That is allowing the 7th Circuit's radical opinion to stay in place. So you see, Supreme Court would never have said this. I do believe that five justices would never have initially done this. But once it's there, they're like, let's let it percolate. Now, when it comes to fetal remains, there they say, there they did agree to 7-2. to two. I think everyone except for Sotomayor and Ginsburg. Agreed to take away the injunction of the Seventh Circuit, but even there, if you look carefully, at what they said, they said that's only because they said there was no rational basis for a state to do this, and of course, there's a rational basis for a state to want burial, but litigants could still lodge a lawsuit against, um, the the fact that this law is. Uh, Putting a placing an undue burden on the right to an abortion. So they invite further litigation. This is this is an often thing that happens in the Supreme Court. Even when we win, they invite further litigation. Again, death by a thousand cuts in the courts. We all, we have to win every time. The left only has to win once. So it's not even a 50 50. Oh, they they ruled with us on one and not the other. Even the one where they did, it, it was they just said, look, you, you know. You can't say there's no rational basis. Of course, is the rational basis for for the law. So remand it back. But if you come back and say it's getting in the way of a fundamental right, then rational basis is not enough. Right? You need strict scrutiny. So um, so that is the court's opinion. Now, Clarence Thomas. A lot of people are talking about this. He lo- he did a concurrence which, of course, nobody else joined, which is interesting, where he launches into a whole tirade against eugenics and what this is doing. Now, nonetheless, at the end, he says, I concur in judgment. Yeah, because this has never happened before, let's let it percolate. Now, it's a little bit weird because he goes to town on how immoral this is, and then he says, let's let it percolate. So I take that to mean that If there would have been enough justices agreeing with him, of course, they would have taken it up and reversed it. But now that there weren't, he just kind of diplomatically says, yeah, we'll let it percolate. That's the way I'm kind of reading it with Thomas. But here's the problem with this. Here's the problem with conservative justices. What do you mean let it percolate? Here's the problem. The left often only goes to liberal circuits, so you never get a circuit split. It takes years, if ever. So you have the most radical things. It's like, let's say they say, again, my famous analogy, two members of each family have to get a sex change operation, cut their balls off. Well, yeah, you're not going to find any anywhere else because it's so nutty. So, like, no, you have to jump in there the first day then an emergency appeal is is filed and the Supreme Court, if you truly are originalist justices, you have an obligation to overturn that. Or if you don't want to decide fully on the merits and give a landmark ruling that will be used as precedent, the status quo thing of percolation is to at least take off the injunction. Meaning if something is radical and you know it's wrong... But it hasn't percolated yet, so to speak. The right thing to do would be, look, This, especially if it's not some executive action, it's a law passed duly by the government. You got to defer to that in the meantime. But no, the so-called conservative justices defer to the lower courts every single time. Every single time. Notice, this is why there's been like 20 radical rulings on immigration. that, And and they're not like these nerdy, abstract issues that you could allow to percolate. They're having live fire consequences. It spawned an invasion and they refused to take off the injunctions on most of these cases. That's not percolation. You're allowing the most radical elements of lower courts win the day. And it doesn't percolate. You know what it does? It creates a political and legal jurisprudential velocity towards something that has no shred of legitimacy. See, if you nip it in the bud the first time, you're like, are you kidding me? A court went ahead and uh, said that, that that the Constitution gives a right to a uh, sex-selected abortion? What? Are you kidding me? But if you're like, well, you know, looks kind of funny, but let's let it percolate. Guess what? It percolates. They'll go to the Ninth Circuit. They'll go to the Fourth Circuit. They'll go to the Second and Third and First Circuits. And they'll get win after win. That's what they did with Obergefell. It creates a political momentum. It creates a legal momentum. And it becomes normal. And by then, the Supreme Court is already like, yeah, this is it. We'll uphold it. Or we'll do a split the baby on it. This is the problem. I don't know why I'm one of the only people in this country, at least who works in politics, that recognizes... This trite talking point of, oh, let's appoint better judges for the fraud that it is. The left has already gamed out a perfect game. At a lower court level, they'll issue, they'll pedal to the metal. They won't, they don't care about precedent. They'll do whatever it wants. At a Supreme Court level, they'll uphold it. Let's go on to the next case. The Mesa case. This is another one of these cases where you had a punk teenage Mexican gang member throwing stuff at our border agents endangering them from the other side of the border and they this this happened in 2010 the border agent shot at this guy and 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 killed him okay and um it's complicated. There's this radical Bivens opinion where the Supreme Court allowed you, know, you to sue government officials for things like this. But the notion that you would extend it, that you could sue law enforcement on national security cross-border issues is out of control. It violates a different opinion. I I forget the name offhand. There was a later case that said that Bivens doesn't apply in the context of diplomacy and and foreign affairs, to have foreign nationals sue. And they're creating Fifth Amendment rights off our soil. right? The guy was off our soil. So in this case, both the district judge and the Fifth Circuit, because it was in Texas, Fifth Circuit, in hernandez v mesa junior ruled that there's no standing you can't you can't sue so we have a supreme court that is so reluctant to take cases up that even if the most radical things there's a right to immigrate a right for caravans to sue whatever it is the supreme court will You know, crazy abortionist agenda. Eugenics agenda. Nah, let's let it percolate. But somehow, the few times we have good lower court opinions, and they're not radical conservative opinions, they're just simply opinions just upholding the status quo. This is precedent that foreign nationals in the context of cross-border stuff can't sue American law enforcement. Guess what? they agreed to take up the appeal. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to win, but but you get my point. Now, you might tell me, Daniel, this doesn't mean, it doesn't prove that Kavanaugh or Roberts or any of these guys is bad on this. Just with the four ironclad liberals, right? Uh, Kagan, Sotomayor, Ginsburg, and Breyer, just those alone, gives them the four votes they need to grant cert. And that could be true. But that kind of proves my point. That the left is always ironclad. Our side plays games, and you mix the two together, and what do you get? They win every time at the lower court opinion. If they don't, they'll always get their appeal. We lose, and even no matter how crazy it is, we don't get the appeal. Every single time. Just out of control. And of course, the transgender case in, in Pennsylvania where the school district puts men in female bathrooms, of course, they denied the the uh, appeal in that case. Any transgender case, they, they just won't take up. So that's what happened at the Supreme Court today. Ima- imagine, see, w- what's happening with some of these abortion cases or immigration cases or transgender cases voting rights cases it's the equivalent of and these are bs rights that that are nowhere as Clarence thomas said abortion of course is nowhere in the constitution but and the right to immigrate certainly nowhere in the constitution but um here's the deal let's talk about an unambiguous right the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay, that's in there. Shall not be infringed. Do you think for a minute, do you think for a minute, do you know what the equivalent of sex selection abortions are? That, you know, for the right of abortion, bear with me, the so-called right to abortion, the equivalent of Second Amendment would be to say, I could carry a bazooka in federal buildings, Congress, congressional offices, um, right? That, that that would be the equivalent. That you take it, even though there it actually is a right, and it says it in the most un- unambiguous terms, shall not be infringed. But let's say someone would sue the federal government or a state, say, I want to carry a bazooka into... Um into uh, a courthouse, Congress, the canon office building, and they go in front of a conservative judge. Do you think for a minute, a conservative judge, you would ever have a time where the guy would say, well, you know, you look, you have Heller. Heller says, you know, it's an individual right and says, shall not be infringed. Then you're infringing. So, uh, you know, you can't, it's a fundamental right. You can't do that. And do you think for a minute, if a judge did that, if you did have some sort of charge, that you wouldn't have within three minutes the Supreme Court taking off that injunction. And it wouldn't just be the liberal judges either. That's my point. Even the most radical things that don't uphold the status quo, they're against present. They're radical. They're revolutionary. They're new. The Supreme Court just sits back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now you understand the silliness of Trump's strategy the last two years. All he could say after these court rulings is we're going to appeal. You're missing the point. You can't win a game like this. You can't win death by a thousand lawsuits where we have to win a thousand times at every stage. And they only have to win once to shut us down. I I hope I've drummed this into your heads enough. So few people recognize this just drives me crazy. So anyway I just wanted you guys to listen to this show and listen to it again every time you hear this business of oh we're winning back the the courts just understand that you know the Seventh Circuit is one of the circuits where Trump made his impact and that's the circuit where this Indiana abortion law came into play. What happened there? Now, again, often, it depends on where you get your three-judge panel from, and it's random. And, you know, sometimes you could get a good judge in a bad circuit, a bad judge in a good circuit. But either way, the point is, they only have to win one time. If they don't win this time, they come back again. I just wanted you to understand the profundity of my bumper sticker statement of a good judge is nowhere as near as impactful as a bad judge. So if you're going to accord judges the power of God, you got a major problem because a bad God is going to be a big problem because he he controls you up and down. There's nothing you can do about that. The good guy is not going to save you from that. The real answer is, we don't live in a judicial North Korea. They don't get to decide political cases, and if they try to, it's not binding on anything. It doesn't have any effect unless the executive branch gives it effect, as Alexander Hamilton said. That is the main point we should be talking about today. You could give bad opinions all you want. They weren't designed to impact the, the country broadly. But instead, they are. And instead, with this game of forum shopping, immediate injunctions, slow walking appeals, and the fundamental difference between the philosophy of a liberal judge and a Republican judge creates this judicial nightmare that we live in today. I don't blame Trump for this breaking out on his watch. But once it did break out on his watch, there's no middle ground. He either is the one to push back against it or he's the one that legitimizes it and codifies it as as a new baseline. Meaning, if I have the most outlandish ruling on your watch and you don't fight back against it, then the precedent is set that even this far, even to this degree, it's like a veto. It's binding. It's There's nothing I can do but appeal. Now, there's a lot going on here. There's tons of other issues I want to get into in the coming days and this week. I'm going to be doing a lot, a lot of interviews with um, sheriffs across the country. You know, I, I had a great conversation with Sheriff Chuck Jenkins of Frederick County, Maryland, on Friday, I might go down there and report on his 280s, 2 g program. They have prevented so much crime there by working with ICE to deport hundreds of gang members in this once rural city that now has an influx of Central Americans. But it's not quite as bad as some other areas around DC because he actually is cooperating. And it just, my heart goes out to these sheriffs because they're really one of the few people left that have a lick of common sense in them. One of my dreams is to get donors, and I don't know where I get them from, to start a political action committee for sheriffs and prosecutors. National Sheriffs Association is not being aggressive enough. They fought jailbreak, but not aggressively enough. And more and more, we have no voice. And and that's another area where the president is screwing us. I don't know if we have enough time to get into this today, but can you believe this? Over the weekend, the president tweets out, anyone associated with the 1994 crime bill, he's talking about Joe Biden, will not have a chance of being elected. In particular, African Americans will not be able to vote for you. I, on the other hand, was responsible for criminal justice reform, which had tremendous support and helped fix the bad 1994 bill. So we now have a president who's... uh, Think about this. Joe Biden, the only difference between Joe Biden and other Democrats is that he was around long enough that he was involved in Democrat politics before the Democrat Party went completely off the wall. So you could find things he voted for. Like, for example, around that era, he voted for the um, IRA, IRA, the immigration reform bill. Because as liberal as Democrats were on fiscal issues, they believed in law and order. Everyone did, to a certain extent. So we have an opportunity, again, this gets back to the bully pulpit. We have an opportunity to use this to drive a wedge between the silent majority of the American people, including swing voters, and the Democrats to show these people are so wild that, yeah, what Joe Biden used to vote for, all of them oppose now. Instead, Trump seeks to get to the left of them. So now he's attacking them from the left. Yeah, I'm the most pro criminal. I mean, really? So, all the lies with the data on the, I, I can't, I, whatever, I've written articles on this before with blacks and incarceration. It's unbelievable. But again, this is what happens. You know, you look at the pre Jared Koch Trump in 2013, you know what he said? Sadly, the overwhelming amount of violent crime in our major cities is committed by blacks and Hispanics. A tough subject must be discussed. When it comes to violent crime, and if we're going to solve the problem, we must stop being so politically correct. must tell it like it is. Likewise, the primary victims of violent crimes are in the African-American and Hispanic communities. These people want law and order now. What does that tell me? Well, the president's quite erratic and capricious, but also it tells me that instinctively, he's open to our views. But if we collapse and we allow him to be taken over, we're worse off than before, just like we are with primary challenges. Perfect opportunity to get him to support our people. But if we don't, he'll now be a tool against us. That's another thing we're going to talk about in the coming days. 2020 elections, but... Not just the presidential election. What opportunities we have in terms of the House and the Senate. In primaries. Because if I don't discuss it, I I guess nobody else will. But this is truly unbelievable. It's funny, the president just... The other tweet we read about the California judge is like, crime coming in through the border. Yeah, buddy, crime, drugs. Who do you think is in that federal prison? The cartel dudes that you yourself to this day still say you want the death penalty for them. This is what I mean by the fact when I say the left uses talking points in pursuit of their policies. We harness policies in pursuit of talking points. So we want a talking point that we're more, more pro-black than the Democrats are. Oh, so we're just going to grab a week on crime policy. no. Grab the right policies, and then you have the talking points and the policies in sync. Because not only does everyone want law and order, like Trump said rightfully so in 2013, here's the deal. Overwhelmingly, blacks commit much more crime. That's sadly true. But what's also true is that, overwhelmingly, most people aren't criminals. And that includes African Americans. So, when you institute weakened crime policies... The first people who are getting hurt are, guess who? African Americans. Where I live in Baltimore is a standing testament to this. Look at what happened when even someone like Martin O'Malley, yes, Democrats in the 90s were locking up criminals. The homicide rate doubled since then. Since the police were told to stand down, since juveniles were never locked up here. Now, it's bad in the suburbs. You have carjackings, you have larceny. Got a lot going on. But in terms of the dead bodies, overwhelmingly, they're almost all blacks. Okay? So there you have your policy that's intrepid and consistent in principle, but you also have a good talking point, too. I'm just so frustrated with this president. What am I supposed to do? What happened to to the old Trump? I know some of you can email, Daniel, you you didn't know any better. Yes, I did. Actually, you could go back to my shows at the time, but I'm trying to be charitable about it. Anyway, a lot more going on. We're going to focus on these and many more issues. Man, the week has just gotten heated up, but tomorrow's already going to be Wednesday. I don't know how we're going to cram it all in, but we're going to find a way. one-stop shop of passion, principle, facts, details and the focus of what matters. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.